one of the most frustrating things for employees is when employers, so if you're an employer, you might want to uh, pay attention here, is when employers give employees a goal to work towards, but not the tools and skills to get there. That can be really frustrating, not only frustrating, but then also discouraging. So, right, you can't actually ever reach the goal, and you can't ever please the one who's giving you the goal, because your boss doesn't give you the tools and skills to get there. Well, from Scripture, we see that God has given Christians a seemingly impossible goal. A seemingly impossible goal, that is the goal of unity in the church. A seemingly impossible goal. Uh, you know, just, just think about unity in general and, uh, you know, turn on the news and you see there that countries are falling apart because of civil war. You, you can look around at your neighbors and especially your very own self and you probably see that marriages and relationships and even, let's say, the places that you work, companies, likewise are breaking apart because of a disunity. Now, I don't mean to discourage you or us in our efforts to unity, because that's what God has called us to. But from our passage this morning, we actually see that while we have this God-given goal of church unity, we see that God has empowered us and equips us to actually get there. So not only do we have the God-given goal of church unity, God also equips us to get there. Go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. That's our passage today. It's found on page 977 in the black Bibles there in front of you. 977 if you're using one of the black pew Bibles in front of you. So in this passage here, this is all about church unity. We see the goal right in front of us. And God encourages us, or we ought to be encouraged, as we pursue this unity. Even though some of you guys know right now this unity is really hard. You might be in the midst of laboring for this unity. Laboring through disagreements. Personality differences. And especially laboring to forgive one another. Forgive one another the sins that you guys have committed. But it's wonderful here that God equips us for the goal. For the task of laboring towards the goal. Look there. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I'll read that. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to us, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So clearly we are to work towards this church unity and we are to be encouraged in our efforts as God equips us to get there. So we're going to look at four different reasons for why we ought to be encouraged as we labor towards church unity. The first is why we ought to be encouraged is that we have our God-given call and characteristics for unity. These are the things that God gives us as we pursue church unity. He gives us a call and the characteristics. This is point number one. Look there in verses one to three. You see how, according to verse one, every Christian has been called into the service of the sovereign king? Paul was called in a very unique way. Actually, he was, to, he was called to be an apostle and to suffer for Jesus' name. That's why he's a prisoner for the Lord. But all Christians have a calling, which is why Paul urges these young Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And this calling here has everything to do with their new lives as Christians. So if you are a Christian, whether a new Christian or been a Christian for a while, this here has to do with you living your new life as a Christian. You know, everything in chapters 4 to 6 of the book of Ephesians uh, are the implications and the applications of what it means for you to be a Christian, for you to have and possess the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, which is really described there in chapters 1 to 3. So everything in chapters 4 to 5, or 4 to 6, are obviously based in chapters 1 to 3, and so we begin here looking at chapter 4. We look at the very practicals of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's so practical. He says, look, this is the way you are to walk and the way you are to live. And actually, this walking theme sort of follows all throughout the rest of the book. Look there, especially at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says there, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. So, so right there, you see there that we're supposed to walk after the Father. It's very practical stuff, and we dive into this a little bit later. Look there at verse 8 of chapter 5. It says, For at one time you who were you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. And he goes on and explains what exactly it looks like to live that way. Look there in 15 of chapter 5. It says, Look carefully, you Christians, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but then as wise. So he was talking about their new lives as Christians, their new lives in Jesus Christ. What is interesting is that we all, if you are a Christian, used to walk in very different ways. So if you turn over to chapter 2, verse 1, we walked just like everybody else walked. It says there in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? No life. It's not anything that they can do to come back to life. And he says there, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, giving ourselves to sin 
and rebellion against Jesus Christ. This is the way that we used to walk. You know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, uh, the Bible says that all men are in that condition there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We walk in these things. We follow in the course of the world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work, driving our disobedience. And then we were under condemnation. We were children of wrath. That means that we were to inherit children, or, uh, we were to inherit wrath because we had rejected God and rebelled against the only true king. But the reason why these Christians that Paul writes to, the reason why you, if you are a Christian, can walk in a manner worthy of your calling that is pleasing to Jesus, you seek to honor Jesus Christ, is because God has reconciled us to himself. So where, where once we were so far down in our sin and under condemnation, under judgment, God himself reaches down into that miry pit and then lifts us up. We certainly can't do it ourselves. Salvation is all by grace through faith in Christ's work. And that's what Ephesians 1 to 3 is all talking about. That we are saved by God's grace, the riches of his grace, as he stands over the storehouse of his heavenly blessings, eager to give it on all to those who repent and believe. You see the, the glories of Jesus Christ here. Where we break the relationship, God moves in space and time to repair it. By sending Jesus Christ to bear our sins and the wrath that we deserved so that everyone who turns from their sin and believes can be saved and united to God. This is what atonement means, doesn't it? at one Making two things and bringing them together and making them at one through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, given all that salvation that we've talked about, given everything that God has done, he's adopted us, given all his unsearchable riches, his eagerness to bless, his grace, his love given through Jesus Christ, he says there in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, because of all those things, live according to this salvation, the calling you have received. Live in a way that glorifies the Savior. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that we have been given. Clearly, this call involves seeking unity. So look at verses 2 to 3. It says there, you see, he says, walk according to the calling. And, and this, and this uh, encouragement is moving somewhere the middle of two, and then three, bearing with one another, and then eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here, walking worthy of the call is done by, number one, bearing with one another in love, and then number two, eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, this, this bearing with, this bearing with is not like the bearing with that some people do, Probably you have one one point in time have done where you bear with those you are just so dying to get rid of. And that's how you bear. You just sort of endure until they get away or until you can escape. Uh, no, this bearing with one another is a bearing with one another in love. It's not a love for, for yourself so that you can escape the situation. It is a bearing with one another in love that is a uh, 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 that is to be marked by lovingly enduring something. 
sacrificially enduring something, gently enduring something, and to do so in a way that eagerly maintains the unity that we have in Christ. Right again, so you see everything's building up on what he's previously written. God has reconciled us to himself, and then he reconciles us to one another. And he says here, continue to maintain what God has already won. Of course, it is all by God's grace and all by God's spirit, but that's what he's encouraging us to do right here. As we have been bonded by the peace of Christ, we are to continue to maintain unity that we have in Christ. We know so clearly that this is all for Jesus Christ and enabled in Christ as we are to forgive just as we have been forgiven. So you look there over at Ephesians 4.32. This is just one example of how we are, can, are to bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32. This is all rooted in Jesus Christ. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's all for Jesus' sake and all because of the grace of Jesus Christ that we can actually work towards this unity that he himself has procured for us. You know, unity is a fragile thing. Unity is a fragile thing. And what I'm talking about here is a visible earthly unity, not a spiritual unity. So spiritual unity that you have because of Christ, that is secure, indestructible. It already says there in Ephesians 1 to 3 that Christ has already reconciled us to him. He has already reconciled us to one another. So that spiritual reality is bonded for us eternally already. But when it comes to our earthly and visible unity, it definitely needs to be handled with care, doesn't it? Just imagine when your feelings were last hurt. Just imagine when someone sinned against you knowingly or unknowingly. And then just imagine how many times we go about our day sinning against other people. We just have no idea that we're tearing apart the unity that Christ has won. It is a fragile thing when it comes to a visible and an earthly unity. This is why it says that it needs to be maintained. It has already been won, but yet it needs to be maintained in an earthly and visible sense, but not only maintained, but eagerly maintained, it says. Eagerly, that is sparing no expense to maintain and uphold this unity that God has already won for us. Just think about it in this church building, let's say. You know, when, he's, when he talks about a building or the church, he's not talking about a physical building. The church is the people of God. Let's just think about this physical building for a second. How many of you guys really care about, you know, all the trash that might be stuffed in the pews uh, right in front of you? Or where the Bibles and the hymnals are? Well, you guys ever care to look in there? You ever care to see about all the different cracks that's going on uh, in the ceiling, in the roof, all the tears in the carpet? <clears throat> you guys ever care about those things? Are you guys eager to maintain the maintenance of the building? <clears throat> Chances are the answer is no. And frankly, sometimes I'm not either. And what happens if we all just sort of kick back and say, oh, you know, let somebody else worry about that. Doesn't everything just sort of spiral into disrepair and then just get gets worse and worse and worse? The same thing goes for church unity amongst relationships, right? The real building that God is setting himself out to build 
and in fact has already laid the foundation. The same thing goes for relationships. Do you take time to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit, that is a spirit that God has already given us, in the bond of peace? Imagine if we all, the 50 of us, the 60 of us who were here, whenever we walked in, were eagerly seeking to maintain and uphold the maintenance of the building. Make sure the restrooms were always clean. Imagine what a beautiful place this place might be. Now imagine if we all were doing that amongst one another, imagine how much more of a beautiful place this place would be if we were eagerly maintaining the maintenance of relationships and filling over those cracks, so to speak, with gospel love and gospel unity. That is the cement that will bind us together so that our earthly unity might come more and more to represent our spiritual unity. What a goal. What a calling. But thank Christ that he not only gives us the goal and the calling, but he also gives us his own characteristics. Did you see there the attributes required for each one of us as we walk worthy? Verse 2, he says there are humility, gentleness, and patience. Now ultimately all these things find them their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, don't they? Christ humbled himself by taking on flesh and dying on the cross. Jesus' gentleness was known very well towards children, the outcasts, the sinners. And then Paul himself praises Christ for Jesus' long-suffering, enduring those who have rebelled against him. And Paul says, that is me. He calls himself the worst of sinners. Well, just as Jesus walked, so his people are to walk. Just as Jesus gives us this call, so he provides us his very own characteristics by the power of the Spirit. And we are being transformed to bear them more and more. You know, Christians, we oftentimes think of these characteristics of humility, gentleness, and patience as things that, uh, you know, drills that we might work on as if we were on the uh, spiritual soccer team, so to speak. You know, all 50 of us, we line up and we do headers, each individually as the coach throws us the ball. We work on those things individually. We then go move on to the next station where we practice shooting goals and we do that individually. We go on towards the goalie spot and we practice catching the ball and we do all those things individually. So we might work on these things of humility, gentleness, and patience by praying for them, seeing what the Bible has to say about them, thinking more about them, and growing individually. But while that is good, God intends that these spiritual skills, so to speak, work their way out amongst the team. And so you see there that humility, gentleness, and patience is undergirding our ability to bear with one another, putting other people's needs before our own. That's humility right there to being gentle towards others, to being long-suffering with those who sin against us, or frankly, we just think are different from us. All those things undergird our efforts to bear and then also to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. As visible, physical unity is a fragile thing. How are you, friend, seeking to cover up the cracks, pay attention to the cracks, not to decry that damage has been done, but really to make sure that those cracks are now bonded over with the gospel. 
That's the first thing that should encourage us. We have a God-given call and God-given characteristics. Thank God He gives us His own humility, His patience, long-suffering, gentleness. Now we just need to rest in them and work at them in private, but then also in the public corporate sphere. Second thing that ought to encourage us as we seek to labor towards unity is God gives us the example of Himself. God gives us the example of Himself in whom there is perfect unity. This is found in verses 4 to 6 there. You look there at verses 4 to 6 where the church's oneness is referred to by, uh, or sorry, the, the unity is referred to by the church's oneness. Look there in verse 4. There is one body. You see that there? He goes on and says that there is one hope. And then in verse 6, there is one all, or one corporate entity, that is the church. But you see what our unity arises from based in these verses. It's the unity of God, actually. Now, at first glance, we can actually miss this if you're just simply reading it along. But did you notice that every person in the Trinity is named here? Every person. So verse 4, you have the Spirit. Verse 5, you have the Lord. Verse 6, you have the Father. Now, we have seen that the Trinity works in salvation before. Actually, we've seen it a couple of different times. In Ephesians 1, for example, we see every member of the Trinity active in your salvation if you are a Christian. The Father predestines the Son. In the Son, there is forgiveness and redemption. And then we possess the Spirit as the guarantee of our future salvation. So there are all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, work together to save sinners in this one grand plan. Same purposes, same desire, same will. And Paul refers to every single person of the Trinity, not because they do different things, specific things, um, but really because all three of them are working to bring about salvation. So he says there is the one body. He says there is also the one spirit. We all, as Christians, have the spirit of Jesus Christ. We have the, uh, then he moves on to the one hope in salvation in the one Lord. All of us have hope in this one Lord. It obviously refers to Jesus. Four times in Ephesians 1, Jesus Christ is called the Lord. And then all of us have this hope in the one Lord. All of us have this one faith in the Lord, defined by the Lord and his truth. And then all of us, if you're a Christian, and have been baptized, have been baptized into this one Lord, baptism in the Holy Spirit, when we were born again or converted. Then he moves on and says, lastly, we are all under the one Father, the sovereign one over all, that is the collective whole. So here, providing a summary, John Stott writes, the one Father creates the one family. Secondly, the one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. And then thirdly, the one Spirit creates the one body think about it that way you can think about it this way too the father plans salvation the spirit the sorry the son accomplishes salvation and then the spirit applies salvation each person here we see of the trinity is working in their unique ways fulfilling their unique roles to bring about the salvation of his people so our unity arises out of the very unity of god now, some of you might be wondering, if the church is supposed to be united, 
have all of this oneness, why don't we just have one church? Why don't we just have one church? No denominations. No different churches around town. It's a, it's a really good question, actually. When Paul refers to the one body, he's talking about all God's people throughout space and time. That's what he refers to when he says there is one body. That's all of God's people throughout space and time. So this includes, for example, first century Christians now long gone. They're part of that one body. This includes churches in Hacienda Heights, too. Right now, in the 21st century, we are part of that one body. It also, encourages, it also includes all churches in Russia that believe the gospel. China that believe the gospel. First century Ephesus that believe the gospel. So every local church that believes the gospel is a local manifestation of that one body. So the one body, you just think about it right now, we are connected to the Christians in heaven, the saints above, who are gathering, as Hebrew says, around the throne of the, the firstborn, that is Jesus, the true king, the heir of all things. When we gather, we are gathering with them. It's kind of hard to think about, but yet the Bible says that that is true. There is solidarity with those who have gone before, and us, and then us to those who will come. So every local church that believes the gospel is a local manifestation of the one body that exists throughout space and time. And that is okay. So we don't have to be discouraged of the fact that there are different denominations or different churches. First Baptist Church is a manifestation. First Presbyterian Jackson, Mississippi, a manifestation. First E.V. Free Fullerton, a manifestation. And every single one of those churches bears the responsibility of eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, the fact that our unity arises out of God's unity is really a comforting thing. We see in the church evidences that God is really a God of peace. You look around and you see evidences of the fact that God really is a God of peace. Evidence that He really is a God who reconciles. I mean, just think for a moment. You guys remember that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. So imagine if God were a God of sinful division. I mean, just let's think about that for one moment. If God were a God of sinful division, and we worshipped this God and idolized this God of sinful division, we would be disciples of sinful division, wouldn't we? The church would be a terrible and ugly place. But thank God, God is not a God like that. Instead, God really is a God who is loving, He is merciful, He is gracious, He's a God of peace and a God of unity. I mean, who would not, in the face of all the different discouraging things you guys face and all the disagreements, all the divorce, all the wars that go on, who would not want to become like this God? If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, you know, your friend that brought you is evidence of the fact that we become what we worship. I am evidence that we become what we worship. I'm not talking about us becoming gods. I'm just talking about us becoming more Christ-like, bearing his characteristics. Now, no doubt you know, probably, that your friend is a sinner. So we all still wrestle with these things, but without doubt the Bible says that God is changing us and he continues to change us. So what's on display in our lives here in the church is not our great hearts or our great ability to love, 
but the unfathomable love of God. That's what's on display when we seek unity amongst one another, bearing with one another, eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, even though you might see glimmers of it. It is nevertheless real. Because God is a God of unity, we as his people with his spiritual DNA, so to speak, can not only strive towards reconciliation with others, but we actually can know this reconciliation with God. We can love because of God's love. And this love, the Bible says, is the same love that exists between the people of the Godhead. The people of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. Imagine that! When we love one another, Christians loving Christians, this is the very same love that God, the Holy God, has towards His Holy Son. And He has had even before anything was created in the world. We know this love a little bit. And display this love a little bit. This is what Jesus says in John 17. Go ahead and turn there. It's worth turning there. John chapter 17. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you turn left, a little bit, you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you see there, John chapter 17. Here, Jesus prays that his people, that is the Christians, would be unified. So he prays, and he says, look, this is what is on my divine mind. I want you guys to work towards this. Verse 22, he says, the glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given them. Look at the reason. That they may be one. As we are one. So here, this is the church's unity arising out of God's unity. I want the church to be one just as we, the Trinity, are one. And then he goes on, 23. I in them. But then also you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Oneness of the Trinity becomes the oneness of the church. So here, again, think oneness of purpose. Oneness of mission, of desire of will that we too can know but the kicker is the result of this unity he goes on right why does he pray for these things he says so that the world would know that you have sent me and loved them just as you loved me so there you see that the same love the father has for the son the father sets upon those who believe in the son so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. We understand this if you one day want to be uh, married to somebody, or if you are married to somebody. Uh, so think one day my children, Lord willing, will get married. And uh, let's say my sons go and marry daughters, or my daughters go and marry sons. I mean, wouldn't I, with the very love I give my children... I would want to extend to my in-laws, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, right? Wouldn't we want to do that, just naturally speaking? So the love that I have towards my children, man, when they get married, I want their in-laws to know without a shadow of a doubt that I love them. And so that's what's going on here. The father loves the son, and those whom the son makes his brothers and sisters, man, would God not love to see those people know that they are loved by God. Loved by the Father. That's the unity that Jesus prays for here. This is the unity that we aim for. The unity that we even indeed experience. The unity that we showcase to others to see. 
the divine love of God. It's amazing to think that we can actually know this. You think that God, the all-righteous and all-pure and all-holy, loves only those things, so His love is holy? He has a holy love? He appreciates those things? He wants to see those things cultivated? He gives himself to those things and he delights in those types of things, right? So what was the Trinity doing before creation? Some people have said is delighting in one another, not in a selfish, uh, impure way. Remember, because God has an all holy love, he delights in all things that are holy. But then yet he sets his love upon sinful people and delights in us just as he delights in his son. It's crazy to think about it. In the words of propaganda, the Christian rapper, it will bake our noodle. (laughs) If you're a non-Christian, let me ask you, where does your unity come from? Presumably you want Christian unity. You know, maybe you look at the husband you have, the wife you have, and you want unity. Maybe you want unity with those who are your children or your parents. If you want unity here in this country or around the world, where does your unity come from? You know, if you believe in something like evolution, remember, you, you believe you become what you worship. So if God is just this somehow force that is just changing everything, doesn't that mean, too, that eventually your God or whatever it is that you believe in will morph and change into something else and maybe one day he appreciates unity and maybe the next, maybe it doesn't. What's the basis of the unity that you so love? Does it change like shifting shadows? I mean, if you know yourself, you know too that even the very things you love change like shifting shadows. But my guess is you still appreciate this idea of unity. Who delights in divorce? The wonderful thing is that this appreciation for unity is to lead us to appreciate the one in whom is the very definition of unity. That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So while, friends, you appreciate this gift, this thing, this characteristic, do you appreciate this God? You you have this instinct or your conscience leads you to love this thing, but do you love this God? Friends, remember, God has displayed this unity for you to know and to love in reconciling sinners to himself. You see how much God is committed to love We all get self-sacrificial love. So God moves in space and time to save the very ones who rebelled against him. And so, friends, you can know this unity if you would repent, turn from your sins, and believe. And so your unity that you appreciate, you come to love the source and the very definition of this unity. Moving on to the third thing that should encourage us as we pursue this unity is that God has given us gifts to enrich our unity. God gives us the call. We've seen that. God gives us the example that is himself. And here we see that God has given us the gifts, the very gifts to enrich our unity. We already have unity. The gifts move to enrich our unity. This is found in verses 7 to 12. Look at verse 7. It says there, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In our passage, Paul's been talking about the corporate, obviously. Did you notice that shift? He makes a hard shift. It's not that he abandons talking about the corporate. 
but he addresses how you, as an individual, in your role, can fit into strengthening the corporate. So these are the spiritual gifts given to the Christian according to Christ's determination, his measure, the measure of grace. And he gives these gifts in order that we would be solidified, that we would move towards unity. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus says, look, I know you can't save yourself, I save you. He says, look, I know you can't maintain this unity, so I give you the spiritual gifts so that you can maintain this unity. I think it's really encouraging. There are a number of different places in the New Testament where Paul lists these uh, spiritual gifts. So you have Romans 12, you have 1 Corinthians 12, you have 1 Peter 4, for example. And here in our passage in Ephesians 4, verse 8, it says that when Christ ascended, when he was raised from the dead, and then when he ascended into high, he gave these gifts to men. And let me explain the passage here. If you have cross-references, your Bible indicates that this is a quotation from Psalm 68. So here Paul is using Psalm 68 to teach. And he parallels what Christ has done in giving these gifts. And the parallel is actually quite fitting. So in Psalm 68, the psalm most likely celebrates the occasion when the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence was brought up to Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And God, too, the king, he arises, he ascends to Mount Zion like the great victor that he is, and he receives the spoils from the defeated, like the great king. But he also he receives in order that he might share with his people. He receives in order to share. Psalm 68, 68 verse 18 says he received gifts. But if you notice in Ephesians chapter 4, 8, it says that Christ ascended as the great victor, as the great victor that he was and gave gifts. It seems Paul here has the emphasis or emphasizes that Christ the victor who rose from the dead is seated up on high above all the heavenly places and he spreads his gifts abroad. So the very spirit that he received at his baptism, after he ascends, he then gives his gifts to all men. He gives gifts. Look there, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds, pastors. The apostles and the prophets, the apostles are the 12 apostles specifically commissioned by Christ to lay the foundation of the church. So there are no more apostles, capital A today. Then there are the prophets who were the others during the early church who spoke and then wrote in God's name. And then the New Testament, it says there that the prophets of the first century were supposed to have their prophecies tested or weighed against scripture. And then the next three categories, I think Paul moves to ongoing ministries. He speaks about evangelists. Uh, it's not a very common word in the New Testament, but we know that uh, Timothy the pastor was to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, presumably this includes you guys who have unique gifts of explaining God's truth to people, uh, to people who've never heard it before, and then maybe God uses you to bring other people to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The pastors and teachers are those particularly responsible for teaching, pastors being a subset of the teachers and actually the leaders of the teachers. But why did God give these gifts to the church? So we all have spiritual gifts. Why does he give us these spiritual gifts? Look there, verse 12. He gives the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, in particular, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So here, as John Stott says, we have an immediate reason and then an ultimate reason. The immediate reason is to equip the saints for the ministry. 
The ultimate reason is to build up the body of Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that here the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the shepherds, the evangelists, etc. They were given in order that the saints would do the work of the ministry. That is, the holy ones of God would do the work of the ministry. This is very much an every member ministry. So if you guys are visiting with us, you know, and you sort of expect the pastors and the staff to do all the ministry, that we are the ones who are supposed to be attending to all the cracks in the church. Actually, you know, the Bible says that that's not correct. It says that you guys, the saints, are to be dedicated to the ministry, dedicated to the work of the ministry. It is true that the apostles and prophets, and then today, the pastors and teachers and evangelists, uh, might be the primary and lead teachers, but yet we teach in order that you all would pick up the baton of ministry and then run with it. This is a very different approach to ministry than many people have, isn't it? Many churches encourage members to think of themselves as passengers on the cruise ship, so to speak. Kick back at the pool with your drink in hand and let the staff take over. But biblical church membership calls for every member to be at their stations, ready for service. Where every Christian, that is, each one of you all, plays your part in the ministry. This is more, more like the battleship mentality. Where our mission is not of war, but of peace and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Where every single one of us are at our stations. This is an every member ministry. So how do you move, how do we move forward in finding out what your gift is if you are a Christian? How do you move forward? How do we move forward in finding out what your spiritual gift is? I, I got uh, two encouragements. But before we get there, keep this in mind. Your gift is given for the good of the church. Your gift is given to the good of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. It means that your responsibility is to ultimately aim for the common good. And whatever gift you have, you are supposed to exercise it towards that goal. So my encouragement to you guys is grow first in your love for the church. Before any talk about spiritual gifts, let's first think about your love towards God's people, the very same people that Jesus Christ himself died for. Jesus calls you to love the church. I've known Christians who have so desperately wanted to know, what is my spiritual gift? But they didn't care about the spiritual good. God tells us, he comments, he lets us know what exactly or how we should be thinking about these people or how we should be thinking about ourselves. If we so desperately want to know what is our spiritual gift, but don't give a rip about the common good. He says that we will become an irritant to the church, a bother to the church. You don't bring harmony to the church. First Corinthians says that you will become a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. So how can you grow in your love for the church while you and the church help or, or while you discern your spiritual gift and as the church helps you discern your spiritual gift? First, let me encourage you guys to aim for helpfulness. Basic practical stuff, aim for helpfulness. 
Aim for helpfulness in the church. And aim at being helpful in the church and in any way possible you can. Any way. That shows God that you are a man, a woman with a humble heart, gentle in spirit. When you say, okay, common good, no matter what it is, I'm going to labor for that. Uh, this was pretty shocking for me earlier on. Um, pastor Rick, many of you guys know Pastor Rick. He's a former senior pastor of the church. Uh, he was busy doing something, leading the church, preaching in the church. And uh, there was a little bathroom accident uh, earlier on when I was an associate pastor. And um, certain things had landed up on the floor and needed to be cleaned up. And a lot of it. And so Pastor Rick, he came over to me and said, Jeremy, I need you to take care of something. I need you to go clean up the bathroom. Um, and initially I was like, ooh, you know what? I do not want to do that. I don't think that falls underneath the common good. But there I was rebuked instantly by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit. Without doubt that is for the common good. It helps those, it serves those who might be embarrassed for someone to come alongside and help. It shows the very fact that, yes, we do indeed need other people in the gospel. And what a wonderful opportunity it was for me to grow in the exercise of humility and putting other people's needs before my own. Wonderful opportunity for me to grow in humility and helpfulness. Without doubt, I, and just like you, are growing in this. We're never perfect. But man, how awesome would it be if all of us were tending to the cracks, for example. Um, you know, those who lead the service. Anthony led the service today. Uh, Danny Lou leads the service. You know, these brothers, when I ask them to lead the service, they're not saying, yes, I definitely want to lead the service. They, you know, oftentimes many guys would have reservations that, ooh, you know what, uh, you think I can do that? And I say, look, brothers, I know your character, and I know your ability. Your character is above reproach from what I can tell, and your ability. All of us should be encouraging, uh, all of us should be working towards handling the word of God in front of other people. So let's go ahead and encourage you to do these things. And I love that approach that says, ooh, you know, are you sure? But I'm happy to do it. You can ask me, I might be a little hesitant, but I am happy to do it. Is that your attitude, brother, sister? Or are you above certain ministries? Someone asks you to clean up stuff in the hallway, in the bathroom. Would you say that you are above certain ministries? Only some things fall within the common good and they just so happen to be the things that you like? It encourages me to see many people here happy and eager to do things but then at the same time recognizing and really trusting the leadership of the church saying look if you ask me I'll be happy to do it even though I might not be the most comfortable to do it aim at helpfulness second thing <clears throat> seek to obey the commands of scripture seek to obey the commands of scripture and grow in basic godliness and love that's the second thing <clears throat> You know, if you guys seek to grow in a spiritual gift, you realize that so much of what's involved in the spiritual gifts is involved in regular, spirit-filled Christian life. So if you guys are so eager to find and flex your spiritual gift, uh, you know, recognize that a lot of what these things 
God requires of us of these things is just regular Christianity. Take the gift of mercy, for example. You realize that Jesus commands all Christians, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Luke 3.36. Why are you guys waiting for to exercise the gift of mercy when God commands everybody to be merciful and compassionate? You don't need to be gifted to be merciful. Jesus commands us to be merciful. Take the gift of encouragement. You realize that all believers are encouraged to encourage the faint-hearted, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. You don't need the gift of encouragement to be encouraging. You can go ahead and encourage one another with the word of God. That's a commandment there given to all Christians. Take the gift of helping. Paul commands all Christians to help the weak, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. You don't need the gift of spiritual helping or the spiritual gift of helping to help those who are in need. And then even when it comes to the handling of the word of God, so the gifts of teaching, which Paul prioritizes, without doubt, in all these lists of spiritual gifts, he prioritizes the handling of the word of God. He realized that all Christians are commanded, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Colossians 3.16. You don't need the spiritual gift of teaching to take the word of God and help other people understand it and then apply it to their lives. Now, it is true that those who teach and preach ought to have a a spiritual gift of teaching, but you don't need a spiritual gift of teaching to handle the word of God and to use it amongst one another. And the wonderful thing, Christian, is that when you grow in your love towards one another, and then loving others with the gospel outside in word and deed. Friends friends are going to see that. You guys are going to see that. And then you're going to affirm it. And then hopefully if you are encouraging, you are going to encourage it. So if you're looking for a spiritual gift, brothers, sisters, aim for helpfulness and obey scripture's commands to just be loving. And chances are over time, you yourself will recognize that you feel a certain desire to do certain things and other people are encouraged by you doing certain godly things. And then we can move on and excel at love, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. All right, that's the third reason that we should be encouraged there towards unity. God gives us the gifts that enrich our unity. Last, as we labor for the goal of unity, we have our God-given head. Our God-given head, Jesus Christ, in whom we grow in unity. This is found in verses 13 to 16. But look there, the summary is found in verse 15. We are to grow up in him in every way. Grow up in every way into him. Now, this doesn't mean that we become Christ. Or rather, we grow to be the body that is fitting for our head. That is Jesus Christ. There are three phrases there, found in verse 13, <clears throat> that describe this maturity. First, you've got the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there you have the ideas of unity in the truths of Christ, and then knowing them deeply and then abiding in them. Secondly, you've got mature manhood. Think of a teen growing up into mature manhood. And then thirdly, you have here the stature that we grow towards, that is the fullness of Christ. That Christ would be seen amongst our body. That we would display his glory. So this is what we are to aim towards. That is maturity. That our body would be fitting for the head. 
Now, immaturity is what we move away from, which is why you have there all those negative things there in 14. Don't be like the children, unstable, not grounded, unwise, unable to tell between fads, or even worse, unable to discern between the lies about Christ and the truths of Christ. Now, if you are a child, he actually, Jesus actually commends us to be like you and have faith like children. But here he's talking about their lack of ability to, um, or in fact their lack of stability. The fact that they oftentimes are not grounded. So what is, so what is it that moves us towards maturity? Look there in verse 15. It's speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. In love. Now here he means to say all of us are to take responsibility of speaking the truth in love. Remember, all of us are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, according to Colossians. So when we are speaking the truth in love, every member's ministry is fueled. Your ministries are fueled as you let the word of God reverberate so to speak within the congregation and of course you do that because we are reminded of the ultimate reason that we serve that is the gospel isn't it the apostles did not go about preaching themselves but christ they laid not the foundation of their church but christ's church the prophets who prophesied spoke not about themselves but of christ jesus so right there you see this is a very gospel driven ministry You see, those who are to exhort are to exhort people to cling to Christ. Those who serve, serve in the strength of Christ. Those who administrate, help the church steward the gifts of Christ. Right? You get the point, right? All of our ministry here that happens in this church's field by Jesus Christ and the gospel. For us to grow towards unity in this church, Christ and his gospel has to have our hearts. How can we tend to the cracks of Christ's body if we do not care about Christ the head? It is from him, it says there in verse 16, it is from him we are joined and held together and equipped and growing. Christ is what makes us this Christian body. To conclude, you see how if Christians are going to walk worthy of the calling that we have been given by Christ, We really do need to love this Christ and then depend on this Christ. Laboring for unity is oftentimes hard, as you guys, I'm sure, know, as it goes against our sinful natures. But friends, as we strive for unity, keep in mind that with God's given call comes God's gracious aid. He has established peace between us and him and then to one another. And then he calls us to maintain this unity And then he equips us for this service by giving us his spirit, giving us his characteristics, giving us and reminding us of this call, giving us himself as the example, and then giving us Jesus Christ, the one that we are to grow into. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a goal we have been given. What a calling we have been called to. And Lord, we acknowledge that oftentimes we indeed are discouraged. 
whether it be discouraged in our unity in our marriages, discouraged in our unity in this church. But Lord Jesus, we pray that we would cling to the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, that we would tend to all the cracks of our relationships, thinking now particularly about the church, that we would tend to these cracks and these fissures with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that your love comes from the greatest heights down into the greatest depths. It goes out very wide. So Lord, we pray that you would make your love known to us, that we would know it more and more so that we might be able to apply it to our very own circumstances. Father, we pray that we would know more of the riches of your great love and be reminded of the fact that it is out of your great love that we are saved. And so, Lord, we would move towards wanting other people in this church, even those we might not naturally get along with, even those we might naturally disagree with. We pray, Lord, that we would move towards them and want to remind them that they too have been deeply loved by God. Father, we know that time is but a breath. We have limited heartbeats and limited breaths. So, Lord, we pray that we would not waste it, waste them. Lord, we pray that we would exercise all of the things that you've given us, the great Christian love that we have towards this very body in order that your glory might be displayed to others. Father, we pray that the gospel would be our mission, and getting it out would be our mission. And that because of that, because we want to see other people come to know the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, the right standing that is in Jesus Christ, the adoption that is in Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that we would lay down our differences and get on loving. Help us, we pray, to exalt and glorify your name, even in First Baptist Church, this very hour. In your name we pray. Amen.